Hi, and welcome to the How Not to Think podcast. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin, the podcast that gets you thinking about your thinking and things like old stereotypes, myths, binary thinking, and all that sort of thing. Uh, Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have with me Mark Hirschberg. He is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Uh, And I'm fascinated to uh, hear that because it totally resonates with me. Um, Mark has had a very successful career working with uh, startups, Fortune 500s, and in academia. And talking of which, he he does teach at MIT. He's got numerous degrees at MIT, also the Harvard Business School. So you get the idea. He's a really smart guy. Now, You'll also be dancing with the stars because Mark is also one of the top ranked ballroom dancers in the country. So that is really cool. Anyway, enough about me. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here today. Well, uh, mine too. So as we always do, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you get to be to where you are today. When I came out of MIT, it was the dot-com era, and I began my career as a software developer. Early on, I realized I wanted to become a manager, an executive. I wanted to be the CTO. And so I began to explore what does that mean? It's not just about being the best coder. In fact, my programming skills are probably worse today than when I used to do it 50, 60 hours a week. There were all these other skills necessary to be that type of leader, leadership, how to interview people and hire people, negotiating, building a strong network, communicating, all these skills, but no one ever taught them to me. And so I recognized this gap. I realized I had to develop in myself because back in those days, you didn't have all the wealth of information on the internet. There weren't even as many seminars and other offerings that we get today. I said, okay, well, I have to go figure this out. And I began to train myself. I quickly realized these skills aren't just for executives. They are for everyone. All of us, no matter what our level, can benefit from employing these skills. So I wanted to hire people with these skills. As I became a manager, I said, let me go hire people with these. I know how valuable they are. But other folks didn't have them either because they also were not taught these skills. So I had to build, not buy. I had to develop it in people. I started putting together training programs. Shortly after this, MIT had gotten similar feedback, research they had done from talking to our corporate partners, the people who hire our students. They said, look, your students are great, really smart, but we want people with leadership, team building, communication. We're not seeing it. This is not unique to MIT. I've seen similar research at schools all across the US, and I suspect in Europe as well. And likewise, it's not just for students or recent grads. These are skills they want universally, but we're not teaching it to them. So MIT said, well, this is a problem. And they began to put together a program to develop these skills in our students. When I heard about this, I reached out and said, you know, I've been working on this. Can I be of any help? I said, yes, please. And I helped develop the first class. And they said, you know, you're bringing in something that our professors don't have. We have wonderful, great professors, but you're in the field, you're practicing, you're using them. Can you help teach this class? And so I've been fortunate that for the past 20 years, I and other people like me have also been part of this program teaching at MIT. So I've had these parallel careers, 
building startup companies, helping Fortune 500s play startup and really creating a lot of innovation, but also one foot in academia, helping to develop these skills in the next generation of corporate America and of entrepreneurs. Yeah, and that's great. And actually I had a similar, although um, probably less less exciting uh, inside. Uh, trained in the best psychology schools in London, uh, uh, was in practice in a variety of different settings and 20 years into my career, of trying to help people change, convince them to change, <laughs> I realized uh, nobody's ever given me a course on communication. I mean, that's crazy. That is insane. The whole, <laughs> virtually the whole career is about communication. So I, I wrote a book called Power Talk, The Art of Effective Communication, which I just recently updated, but it, but it absolutely resonates with me that it's not just technological change that, oh, the things that we're teaching, you know, aren't, aren't necessarily relevant in, in the workplace today. It's not just technology. It's just an old fashioned education system that is way out of touch with the skills that are needed. It unfortunately is. And there are a couple of reasons for this. In the US, the high school system really goes back about 150 years or so. And it ties into the industrial revolution. Prior to that, you learned everything you needed to learn on the farm. If you were a boy, mm -hmm. dad taught you how to farm. If you were a girl, mom taught you how to cook and clean. And that's all you needed to know. But as we industrialized, as we urbanized, and people started to move off from the farm and work in factories, now you need some additional skills. You need reading, writing, arithmetic. So we recognized as a society, we had to teach people these basic skills just for societal literacy, just to be able to function, to be a capable workforce. And that's what high school was designed for. And that was sufficient going back about 100 years or so. That's still the expectation today that high school gives you just the, the fundamentals to go in society. Now the university system, that goes back about 900 years. And the university system was founded by people said, we're going to focus on higher learning on these specific areas, getting very deep in knowledge. If you think about today's universities, if you are a marketing major, so what happens? You show up and there's a whole bunch of marketing professors, the experts in marketing. And they say, well, we are the experts. We've decided if you want to say that you're a marketing person, what you need to do is take all these classes, intro to marketing, advanced marketing. They're gonna give you a set of classes. And when you take all this, plus maybe a few general requirements the university throws in, at the end, you get a degree that says you are a bachelor's in marketing. Now, remember these marketing professors, they only know marketing. They don't know anything else. That's their area of focus. Mm -hmm. And they know marketing very well. Mm -hmm. What they say in that degree is that you now know a certain level of marketing. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know this level of knowledge of marketing. They're not saying you're a good marketer. They're not mm -hmm. saying someone should hire you for marketing. They're not saying you're a good employee, a good coworker, good communicator, not even saying you're smart. They just say you have acquired a certain level of knowledge of marketing. We have used this as a proxy for, oh, you're a good worker. And if all you were doing was sitting in your desk and working on marketing projects, doing nothing else, that might be sufficient, but in today's world, as we collapse that hierarchy and you have these dynamic teams and you're working with different people from different departments and you have to take initiative because your boss is too busy to tell you what to do, 
-hmm. you need these other skills that we're not bothering to teach you. So you're right that we have these very antiquated systems and it's not serving us well in our modern careers. No, no. And of course, there's a difference between intellectual knowledge and facts and the practical application of ideas or the malleability or the modification of those ideas. Uh, and again, that whole thing of sitting in a classroom for 12 or 16 years probably needs to be revisited. Let's put it that way. I think so. And actually on that front, I think the modern education system saying you need everything you need from 18 to 22 and then you're done, that's not going to work. We need to create a society where maybe you get some initial upfront training, but you have continual training that involves a certain level of work each year. And we know in law, in medicine, in accounting, they have to take continuing education credits every two, three years or so. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we might also say every 10 to 15 years, you're likely going to go back for some more intensive training. And that's when you're more likely to do a bigger career shift, not necessarily a full pivot, maybe right, right. either deeper training for the next level or a pivot. I think we have to adjust societally to that. Yeah. And I also think at a personal level, that's important as you go through different stages and phases of your life. Um, clearly, we're beyond the notion where, you know, you get a job at 22 and you do it for 45 years and you retire uh, with one place. I also think, and this is based on my own experience, uh, that we can get too locked into, oh, I'm a, you know, fill in the blank, accountant, lawyer, psychologist, whatever, writer, whatever. No, that's not you. You're automatically limiting your opportunities as soon as you do that, right? You automatically limit it. Very true. And even if you say, all I want to do is be a writer, be an accountant, and say, I, I know this is my path in life, the world in which you are performing that function is evolving, is changing. What the writer is today, what the accountant is today is different than what it was 20, 30 years ago. So you have to evolve. You have to change your mindset of what that role is. No question. No question about that. And, and I think that's probably a big, big difference because still, even though people would relate to that, I think still there's that expectation that, oh, I'm doing a degree and I'm going to be a doctor, lawyer what have you, and without the, the understanding that it's an evolving process, medicine in 10 years time is gonna look quite different than it does today, let alone 20 or 30 years time, right? As Absolutely. probably as every other profession. And there's another great example. Doctors, they come out of med school, all this great knowledge, many of them go into private practice. They were never trained for private practice. They were never taught how to hire staff, how to pick a location, how to market, how to do the books. We are not training people for the actual jobs that they do. And more importantly, if we're just talking about uh, the healthcare, they weren't actually trained to do something that is really critical in healthcare, is really be effective in helping people change their behavior. Yes. They don't have the time for that. They don't have the, the training for that, what have you. And that's critical since so much of the healthcare issues they see are simply related to lifestyle. If they had really effective coaches who would actually change people's behavior, that would be awesome. But doctors can't do that. Right. We're not, we're not training them for that. We're right. training them for right. diagnostics. 
Yeah. And so it's really, isn't it? It's really about a different mindset about a professional, a profession on its own or the whole professional landscape. Absolutely. And this will vary from one field to the next, but you really need to look at what is your job function? What is the purpose of it? And to your point, using doctors, is it narrowly to say, oh, I've diagnosed you have an ulcer? Or is it to say, looking holistically, here's where you're eating too much and that's likely to lead to cancer later in life or diabetes. We need to make fundamental changes versus a tactical, you have a sprained ankle, here's how we treat it. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, obviously pharma has a big influence on that because it's just easier to write a prescription and hope for some symptomatic relief rather than any real change. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's a really, a really big issue. And also uh, part of this is, is general in the sense that, you know, we were talking about what you learn in school. Um, and you may know that numeracy in this country, you know, there's a lot of people who are very good at it, but there's a lot of people who aren't. And um, I think the US comes in pretty low down amongst developed countries in terms of their numeracy skills. And the simple thing of compounding, for example, <laughs> I don't think the majority of people understand compounding. I just, you know, and it's critical in probably pretty much every financial transaction you do. Uh, it's also critical in things like COVID where, oh, I'm not going to infect, I may infect two people. No, you could actually infect 10,000 people, right? Uh, you know, that's a hobby horse of mine, but it's a good example how those skills are not made practical. They're not taught to people. And those are huge gaps in people's ability. Numeracy financial literacy, these skills, I don't talk about them in my book, which are more mm -hmm. the fundamental networking, negotiating leadership, but these are skills I very firmly believe should be taught in middle school and high school. These are the skills we need for modern society, not just the reading, writing, arithmetic, but to your point, people get in credit card debt. They don't understand budgets when you're voting for a politician. They don't understand infection rates and we need to address this. I know there are people actively trying. I think we really need to look back at the purpose of our primary education. I'm also a believer that we can't just pass people through. We need to say, here is a standard. If you're not meeting it, if it takes you more than 18 years to get there, that's what it takes. And that's okay. And there's not necessarily shame in that. Part of it, I believe, comes from we had depended prior on our family units to do some level of teaching. And unfortunately, as society has changed, we no longer have that information, that training coming from the family units. We haven't replaced that with schools. Right, and, on the f and another part of that, which I've seen during the course of my career, part of that is, you know, it's really geared for, you know, either you're really scientific in maths, but it's really geared for people with good verbal memory. You know, and if you don't have good attention and memory, 
you know, you're going to fail the tests, you're going to be seen as an idiot, you're going to label yourself as an idiot. And I've seen people do this tragically, who have phenomenal skills, you know, for, for artistic skills, manipulative skills, technical skills, but they label themselves as an idiot or stupid because they don't fit into that system. It needs to be much more malleable. Even how we train and teach it's a teacher standing up front. And we know some people learn well in that environment. I certainly did. Other people learn better by reading. Some learn better by doing hands-on, some from peer learning. And we need to have more flexible means of teaching. Unfortunately, as a, a friend of mine used to say, options cost money. <laughs> and we just don't have the money for it in most school budgets. Yeah, yeah but those are the, yes, no, I understand that. Absolutely, because teaching and helping people understand is really about meeting them where they're at. So, you know, it almost has to be individualized and that becomes a problem. Yes. Tell us, uh, tell us about the tools in your book, the career toolkit. The book is broken down into 10 chapters in three sections. And these topics aren't just what I woke up one day and said, oh, I think this is important. These come from that research from corporate America saying these are the skills we're looking for. The first section, careers, how to create and execute a career plan. Second chapter, in-office skills, managing your manager, understanding corporate culture, politics. Third chapter, interviewing. Now there's lots of content how to interview as a candidate, very little how to hire other people. And most of us have zero training how to do that. The second section, leadership and management. And it's really the fundamentals of what it means to lead. Management's broken down into people management and process management. These skills are not just for people with certain fancy titles. They are for everyone from day one on the job. And then the third section, interpersonal dynamics, communication, negotiation, networking, and ethics. Yeah, awesome. Uh, really critical things. Um, I've been doing some some research recently on the uh, neuroscience of negotiation. Um, tell us your thoughts on negotiation. I know that's a large question, but you know. Here's, here's what kills me on negotiation. We're going to do a little bit of compounding math here. What I tell my students Imagine you are 22 years old, you get your first job out of college, they offer you $70,000. But you've studied a little bit of negotiation. You read one book, took a couple classes, spent just a few hours learning. You go and negotiate that job. You say, okay, instead of 70,000, you negotiate and get 71,000. All right, that's, that's reasonable, we can all imagine that. If you do nothing else, if you sit in this job for the next 40 years, you just got $1,000 more for 40 years. You just got $40,000 for one single five-minute negotiation. Now, of course, we go, well, that's not realistic. You're not going to be in the job for 40 years, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you'll get more jobs and more promotions and raises. And when you do the math, you say this is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we're even just talking salary. Right. Other things you negotiate, whether it's your compensation, negotiating with customers, with partners, negotiating with coworkers. When you look at this way, how are we not investing time in learning to negotiate? The ROI is massive. And the secret, by the way, is this is true for all these skills. No one's going to say, oh, you're a better communicator, so I'll give you $1,000 more. 
but being a better communicator gets you more opportunities, gets you a bigger raise and has the same effect. It's just not so direct. So the first myth is that we think, well, negotiation, that's for certain people and it's hard, it's not worth it. If you just become slightly better, it's not about being the world's greatest negotiator, but you get slightly better, there is a massive ROI. Now, the second basic, I'll say myth, the, the mindset change, because each of the chapters I try to bring in, there is a mindset shift. And then here's a bunch of tactics to actually develop the skills and apply them. The mindset shift for negotiation is thinking we're on opposite sides of the table. So I want to fight you and I want to win. One of the things that really opened my eyes is a quote from Sadahara Oh. He is the world home run champion. So Japanese baseball players hit the most home runs in the world. And when asked how he does it, he said, well, I look at the pitcher as my partner in trying to hit a home run. Now, when you think about it, you go, wait a second, you are literally on opposing teams. I know that pitcher does not want you to hit a home run. And he knows it too, but he has that mental shift. He says, I'm going to see him as my partner. And what good negotiators know, it is not, I am negotiating against you. I am negotiating with you. We are partners and we together will hopefully create an agreement that we both find acceptable and are better than not having a negotiation at all. And we together will create this. It is we, it is us, it is partnership. And when you get that mental shift, it changes how you approach negotiations. Yeah, and that's sort of what I've been finding too. And you know, if you create that opposing mentality, you know, near, near what's going on neurologically is now the barriers are up, now you're fighting. And it actually is reflected in you know, the neurochemicals in the brain. When you create this, we're doing this together and the dopamine flows, uh, that's when you get a lot of cooperation and working together and it makes perfect sense, uh, except it's not obvious to most people, right? I will explicitly, when I am negotiating, say with a vendor or potentially hiring someone, instead of sitting across the table from this person, I'll sit at that 90 degree angle. One of us is on one side, one's mm-hmm. on the other. And now we're not physically looking at each other in opposition. And it's subtle, but to your point, it's these little subtle changes. And certainly consciously, I don't say, oh, you are my enemy, oppose. <laughs> but I also do these other subtle things to both help myself and my partner in how we're going to approach this negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very critical. And again, I, th- I think people don't understand that at all. They think it's got to be adversarial. Uh, and it absolutely does not have to be abs- adversarial. In fact, the evidence suggests that's really a poor tactic. Because <laughs> people will walk away pretty quickly. Even if, even, actually, they'd walk away even if you offer them a good deal. They're so ticked off. <laughs> yeah, there's that emotional component and that logical component. And you have to play to both. No question. No question about that. Um, so you talked about uh, negotiation. Communication, of course, is a huge one. Uh, what are some of your ideas in the book on that? Communication, and this is a very wide topic. We could talk about a thousand different communication books, each on a different topic. I get down to a really fundamental approach. Let's use a a model everyone's familiar with. We have left brain and right brain people. 
imagine you have to pitch an idea to your boss and your boss is very left-brained. How would you do this? You'd probably create an outline, a plan, maybe a slide. Here's the 17 points. They each have a sub point. I'm going to create a very logical argument and run you through this. And over the next 45 minutes, we're going to go through every little detail and I'm going to show you this plan makes sense. That was a great way to pitch to an extreme left brain person. Now imagine you're pitching to an extreme right brain person. If you come out with your 17 points, all of which have sub points, you're going to lose that person in about 60 seconds. Yep. For that right brain person, you want to take a holistic approach. Maybe it's a story. You want to be inspirational. You want to be creative, nonlinear. And that approach, of course, wouldn't work with the left brain person. We need to take a different tack with each of these people. Now, of course, none of us are purely left brain or right brain, but we all certainly have preferences and styles. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I talk about different models for how to approach all of our, it's not just left and right, but there are other different approaches we can use and how to recognize this, how to think about it, and how to develop your communication style so you can communicate with different people in the language that they prefer. <clears throat> And understand, you know, and, and the phrase that I use is meet people where they're at, which is understand as much as you can about them, uh, which then can be very useful in communication, in, in reaching them where they're at, reaching them the things that interest them. Yeah, and you're right, the natural inclination is to be logical and rational and, you know, do this very detailed bullet point, PowerPoint show, and as you say, they'd be asleep and, you know, 90 seconds if it's the wrong person you know right the analogy i like to use if i went to paris and i have to do a talk i would prefer it'd be better if i could do it in french and everyone says okay we're going to listen unfortunately i don't speak french now most of them probably speak english especially in in certain communities so if i go and do my presentation in english all of them they understand english but they're spending a little mental energy translating the English into French. It's this little mental tax. And so instead of being 100% focused on my message, they might only be 80 or 90% focused because they've got to divert that extra energy. Right. And that detracts from my message. It detracts from their acceptance of it, how well they'll understand it, how well they'll incorporate it. So if I can move towards speaking French, I make it easier for them to understand and accept. And that's what we're doing when we change our language and approach and really communication style to our audience. Yep, yep, absolutely. And again, it's stunning to me that communication is simply not taught very much at all. Uh, again, especially to people in the helping professions. I mean, the doctor has an amazing power if he learned how to do communication, the evidence is that a lot of people forget what he's half of what he's told them before they've got in their car on the way home, you know? Um, and one of the other things is also this understanding of facts really as probabilities, you know? So if a doctor says, well, unfortunately you've got whatever, and uh, you know, um, you're going to die probably within the next three years. If you believe that you probably will. Right. Uh, if he said like, 86% of people die, but you know, there's another 10% that live 10 years and 4% have lived 20 years or longer. That's a different communication, isn't it? It's surprising how many doctors don't understand Bayesian probability. They don't. And if you ever get 
your test results are positive or negative, ask the doctor, what is the probability that that is correct? They'll probably give you a blank stare. Yep. They haven't been trained. But to communication in general, to your point, the little that we do in schools, I remember doing this where you're going to stand up in front of the class and present and we talk about eye contact and using your voice and body language. And sure, those are important. And we're seeing universities are now saying, oh, you have to do this at the university level. You're not getting enough at the high school level. But for most people, and while I do think people should learn public speaking skills because they're used not just when on stage, if you think about the amount of time you are up on stage or even using some of those public speaking skills in other forms versus these more fundamental communication techniques of recognizing your style or how to influence and persuade you, that we're using every single day and we don't talk about that at all. So we're not focused on the most fundamental, the most important communication skills. Yeah, and again, it's that difference between sort of facts and knowledge and application um, and the use of. And I think that's where a lot of it goes south. Well, now that's another interesting subtlety with these skills. Our education system is typically designed by having the sage on the stage, the teacher or the professor in college stands up and says, listen, everyone, here's how to solve a quadratic equation. Here's the dates you need to know for the American Revolution. Copy this down, memorize it, and on the test, I'll ask you to recall it. This is most of our education. It's true. A book is the same thing. This podcast is to some ways the same thing. And these are fine ways to teach, and that works for learning the quadratic equation or other things. When it comes to these skills, when it comes to leadership or communication or negotiation, there is no simple formula. There's no three things to memorize and you're done. They are subtle, often situational, and we need to teach them in a different way. Now, the way we teach them at MIT, the way they're taught at top business schools, it is through peer learning. What we do is we get folks together and then we have a discussion. Now it might be led by that sage, by that professor, but in that discussion where you and I might be talking about communication and a situation, I'm saying, oh, I'm, I'm trying to explain this to people in my company and they're not getting it. I said, well, Mark, have you tried this? Or I was in a similar situation. Oh, I never would have thought of that approach. And it's not that my approaches are bad. They're just not right for the situation. And by having these discussions with different people and learning these different skills and how and when to apply them, we get a richer and deeper understanding of these skills because it's not that raw knowledge transfer. And this is how we have to develop them. But unfortunately here, now we still have books. And of course, you've written books, I've written <laughs> books. And I'm not saying books are bad, but that's not the only way to do it. And we see with training as well, a company says, oh, you're a, you're a fast tracker. We're going to send you to leadership training for three days, learn all this, done. Now you're designated a future leader. We want to have this continual learning, both because we want to get the subtleties and not just I dump knowledge on you and now you know it all, but also so it stays top of mind. When we teach someone the new accounting system, we we'll say next Tuesday, new accounting system, learn to do these expense reports. Okay. I'll learn the expense reports. I know when and where to apply that knowledge of expense reports. But when we send someone to three days of leadership training, they don't immediately recognize the next week, next Thursday at 
4.52 p.m., oh, wait, this is where I have to apply technique number three. It's not so obvious. And so by having that continual learning, not only do you get this more rich understanding, but you also have it top of mind that helps you recognize where to apply it and recognize when other people are doing it. So you're more aware and you accelerate your own growth and development. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise it can just become sort of habit and you're not even thinking about what you're doing or the impact on it. And so that's, you know, that's very, very, uh, important and interestingly i had an experience in high school many you know in the last millennium um when i was doing there were two history teachers teaching advanced history in the high school and the guy i had was just a memorized guy here are the facts give you the test you memorize the dates the battles the what have you the other guy was not like that at all he would try to take you back in time to feel and think what it would really be like there, you know? And it's interesting, they, they typically swapped each other's classes and marked their papers. And so the class I was in, a lot of the kids would get things like uh, A, you know, an A minus or an A, but you'll never be a historian, <laughs> <laughs> which was true. And actually, it was only after that that I realized that history class was not about history that I took. If I'd taken the other guy's class, that would have been about history. It took me years afterwards to realize that. Just memorizing dates does not make me a historian at all. That's another difficulty I have with the current education system. When you look certainly at the college level, all the classes really have some fundamental lesson about what this class is trying to teach you. For example, the reason we have so many people learn calculus, because most people are never going to use calculus. And why do I have to do it? But colleges require it. Calculus, when you understand calculus, it's really about symbolic manipulation. That's the essence of calculus. Taking this concept of this minutia, you can't see it. I, I don't quite know how to touch it, feel it but I'm gonna move it around and double it and add it and do things with it. And when you can train yourself to do that, that's a fundamental skill that's applicable elsewhere. But the professor at no point says, by the way, for all of you who will never do a derivative in your life again, this is why you need to know it. And so instead we just force students through this class and they say, okay, well, that wasn't fun, but I'm glad I never have to do it again. And we don't make that final connection where I think it would ground the knowledge and experience much better. No question about that. We'd probably say that about almost every course, some are a bit more obvious than others though. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, it's not just parents understanding this or an older generation, that the students themselves at every level have to understand this, you know? Yes. Uh, otherwise it's, I'm just taking this class. Now it's interesting. Um, when I was in practice, if I had any student who was in any sort of educational setting, could have been kindergarten or it could have been, you know, an advanced degree, typically uh, university level first degree, um, I'd say, what's your favorite class? And a lot of the time I got the same answer, not all of them, I got the same answer. And it's not a class and it's not recess. What do you think they said? lunch <laughs> uh, try one more time i'll give you 
Now, I should tell you that there are people at Yale in School of Education that I and they didn't get the answer either. So I, I was guessing lunch, not just in a flippant way, but oh, that's right. where the socialization. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I could think study hall for the same reason if they are discussing yeah. and talking. The answer was the class taught by my favorite teacher. Ah, yes, that makes sense. Doesn't that make sense? Yes, completely. It really resonates with everything you're saying. Their favorite, they connect with their favorite teacher. That's why he or she is a favorite, right? And then they're involved and then they see the purpose of it and then they're excited about it. And that's a favorite class. You know, you could have English one year taught by, you know, somebody you really had no interest in. And, I, and this has happened. And English next class taught by someone who was really speaking to you. Two different classes. That, I have to say, I had that experience because while I love math and science, ever since I was a little kid, that was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. part of who I am. History was never particularly of interest. I had a teacher, Mr. Welsh, for ninth grade history, very entertaining. And then I had Colonel Connor was my 10th grade history teacher, really got into it. And having great history teachers made me appreciate history in a way that I otherwise would have just said, I'm, I'm getting through this and done. But thankfully, I really do enjoy and understand history, probably because of these great teachers I had. A question and a great teacher by speaking to you in your language, as it were, really engages you at a different level. And I'm sure, you know, we were talking about dopamine in the brain and negotiation. I'm sure it's the same thing. You come into that class, you're excited, you're attentive, you're thinking about it. Whereas, you know, you're not twiddling your thumbs or probably today looking at your phone and wondering, you know, how long it is to lunch. Um, totally, totally different. And that's also a skill that we need to think about because, you know, you hear teachers say, oh, my kids, they just don't get it. I've told them this 10 times and they still don't get it. Well, perhaps it's not their fault. <laughs> I can tell you from my ballroom dancing days, one of my challenges was my posture. My first partner, she was five foot two, I'm six foot one. Mm -hmm. And so I would tend to hunch over because mm -hmm. she's tiny. All of my coaches would say, stand up, put your head back, <laughs> put your shoulders back. And I understood that, right? That's pretty simple instruction, but applying it was harder. And for years, they would tell me this. And for years I struggled until one day, one of my coaches said, imagine when you're out on the floor, imagine there is a second floor balcony and you need to project your chest up to that balcony. And all of a sudden it just clicked. And all of a sudden there I went, okay, that's how I'm going to think about it. Not put my head back and shoulders back, project to that balcony. And that changed how I danced. And so this is something where it's just the right thing for the right person. To your point, having the teacher explain it in the right way, hit that right analogy, that's what's going to make the difference. But I suspect I don't know enough about teacher education. I don't think we're teaching them here's subtle ways to connect with students or teaching them more fundamentals of pedagogy. Right. And then the teachers themselves have that skill or trade or whatever you want to call it that enables them to do that, to speak 
not necessarily to every kid in the classroom, I think that would be very difficult, but at least to try to create and present it in a way that they understand, that it's not abstract. And, and for me, that is a failing of education. Now, we have to find a way of doing that. Um, as you say, there's a cost and there's a lot of effort involved in trying to sort of individualize education, but it can be done. It can be done, I think. I really do. Um, but there's a big shift that needs to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that, actually. Um, you, you know, you're, you're a agent of change and a pioneer of change. How do you see these issues to do with life skills, education, training? Do you see them changing and evolving? Not as fast or as much as we'd like. The university system, unfortunately, moves very, very slowly. I do think COVID will have an accelerating factor on education in that the university system, we see lots of tertiary universities having some challenges these days. Certainly, you take your top 100 universities, they have endowments, they have reputations, they got through COVID okay. But we're seeing smaller schools where they had to send their students home and the students are saying, why am I paying the same amount of tuition? It's a, it's a question in general. We've already seen people are saying, why am I paying tuition? What am I getting? I want to pay for the outcome. I want to pay for you're getting me a good job and a good career. And if you're not, this might not be worth it to me. So we've seen that pressure. It got accelerated in COVID. And that might start to change some schools to say, how do we make this more practical? How do we make this useful for getting jobs and not just handing out degrees? Likewise, with the advent of online learning, which also got greatly accelerated this past year, yep. we're recognizing that knowledge transfer, that watching the professor live or on video and transferring knowledge, that is not necessarily worth all that we're paying for. Now, there is value when you're on campus, whether it's drinking late one night and having to show up to class the next day, or whether it's just those late night discussion sections with other people, or doing the electric car club and the other fun activities where you learn. I learned a whole bunch of things from being on the MIT ballroom dance team. So yeah. those valuable parts of the learning experience. I think we're going to start to break down what is it that people are really learning? Where is the value coming from? And we can start to realign some of that but that is for traditional universities, a 30 year process. So I think it's gonna be unfortunately a little slower than we'd like. We're going to see people, I think, with the advent of the younger generation of millennials and the next generation who grew up learning on YouTube and learning online, they're starting to recognize, I don't have to wait till I'm in the classroom to learn. So they're gonna have more of a lifelong learning I want to do this. I'm going to just watch a bunch of videos online and they're going to engage their education from different sources. So that's going to create a different uh, pressure for the traditional education system. Absolutely. And I think one thing that I've thought about and have tried to do also, um, doing a course, creating a course on communication, is it, it's easier to create a course in communication that has some subtle changes in it that appeal to it. So, for example, you could have, um, you know, algebra for NFL fans. 
okay? Uh, and you can use the metaphors and the language and what have you in terms of NF the NFL, right? Because you could take any of those things and, and you know, if you have somebody who loves basketball, you could probably teach them everything you need in a class in basketball metaphors, you know, geography, math, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things. So that might be a possibility because it seems to me it would be easier to say, here's my course on, say, communication. Here's my course for NFL fans. Here's my course for cooking, you know, aficionados. Here's my course for that. And the substance would stay the same, but the metaphors that you would use uh, would be related to people's interests. I am a big fan of that. I tend to use a lot of analogies. I use a whole bunch in the book. I also use it in my work because I'm a CTO and deal with complex technical issues, I have to often explain this to people with different non-technical backgrounds, sales, marketing, finance, and all these folks, when I, when I just say, well, here's why you know, the server isn't going to scale that way. I'm like, okay, well, whatever you say, I was never good at STEM. All right, let <laughs> me try this a different way. I'll come up with an analogy typically in their domain. And that's what usually helps make it concrete and resonate. And I think you're absolutely right, both because it's a model they can understand, particularly when you're doing abstract ideas. Probability, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, probability is really hard, even for mathematicians, it's hard. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you say, well, let's think about in basketball, what percentage of shots get made, mm -hmm. it's a little more real. Plus you get that excitement, ooh, basketball, I love right. basketball, now I'm engaged. Yeah, exactly. That's, I, exactly that's right. a, a fantastic way to approach how we should be teaching some people can say, do I want the basketball math? Do I want the knitting math? If that's what right. you're into, you can do right. all sorts of different styles. Absolutely. And I think that's probably where it's going to go because that seemed to me to be easier to make that transition from where we are now. Mark, this has been awesome. We could go on probably for several hours and we'll get you back. Um, where can listeners find out more about you? I will have some things in the show notes, but uh, from your own mouth, where can they reach you and find you? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book as well as where to buy it, Amazon and elsewhere, as you'd expect. You can get in touch with me or follow me on social media. You can find links to the free app on both the Apple and Android stores. It's a companion app to the book to help you learn and retain what's in the book. There's also an entire resources page where I have some free downloads, how to create that peer learning group, some of the content from the book. I list other books I reference in mine and have links to other online resources in the, that I mentioned in the book. So all of this is available on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. That's awesome. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been really great talking with you. We obviously uh, share some ideas here too. So let's let's get back together again at some point. Uh, but it's been awesome. We can talk about forum dancing about next time. But, but it's been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.